Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update on recruiting. Should you go for the forgivable loan? It's a conversation with my partner, Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And for Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn about more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. My partner, Lewis Diamond, recently wrote an article which was published in Advisor Hub entitled Advisor Recruitment, the Bull and Bear Case for a Forgivable Loan in which he explored a question many advisors who are weighing their options ask themselves. Should I go for the short-term windfall or bet on the long-term potential of my business? The truth of the matter is that there are good cases for both options. The merit of forgivable loans tied to recruiting is an ongoing argument in the wealth management industry. It's a decades-long conversation for advisors considering change, especially those in the W-2 world, And it's about monetizing the business by negotiating a lucrative transition bonus with competing organizations. Yet those on the independent side often talk about building long-term enterprise value and controlling one's own destiny instead of focusing on deals. Is it wrong for an advisor to seek monetary remuneration for taking the risk and going through the hard work of a transition? Absolutely not. Is it better for advisors to self-finance their move and focus on the longer-term economics of independence? Lewis and I are going to explore both sides of the topic in this episode, so let's get to it. Lewis, thank you for joining me. Yeah, of course. It's such an important topic, so it should be fun to dive in. So, Lewis, let's start by talking about deals in general. What are we seeing as far as ranges? How do deals differ depending upon the channel? Yeah, so the real comment is it really does differ depending upon if you're looking at a wirehouse firm, a regional firm, which would still be a W-2 option, maybe a boutique firm, and then certainly independent firms either offer no upfront capital or much lower deal. For a, let's say a million dollar plus business, I would expect the deal to range from anywhere from 200 to 330% of trailing 12, depending upon the quality of the business and the type of firm that an advisor is going to join. And the deals, it's not all paid up front. Roughly half of the deal is normally up front. Some firms will reimburse all or a portion of an advisor's unvested deferred compensation. And then there's back-end components that require an advisor to transfer the business at certain intervals and then grow the business as well. And so could be quite lucrative depending upon the firm, but really devils in the details. And advisors have to weigh the long-term implications of the firm they join versus the shorter-term implications of what the financial package looks like. Let's break down some of what you just shared. 
That was a big range. Is there a way of thinking about it? Is it that the wirehouses offer the biggest deals? Do the regional firms fall into a certain range within that? What does that look like? Yeah, so I would say rule of thumb, the, the wirehouses pay the most. They always have, but there are some outliers and exceptions. In the regional firm bucket, for example, Ameriprise and RBC tend to be at the higher end of the range, which both could be 300% or above, depending upon the advisor. And then some of the firms like Raymond James, Stiefel, and Janney are usually a little lower, but they're still having remarkable recruiting success. And then if we look at some of the more boutique firms, Rockefeller, First Republic type organizations, JP Morgan as well, those all can have a three in front of it as well. So again, depends upon the, the type of firm and really the size of the advisor's business and the underlying quality. So three in front of it, meaning a total deal of three times an advisor's trailing 12 months production. So you mean? Yes. Got it. So you mentioned that's a sample deal for a million dollar producer, but what happens if it's a $5 million team? Yeah, it's going to be relatively similar. The larger the business, the more leverage the advisor has, and the more a firm wants an advisor, the more they're willing to get creative. So it's not that a $5 million team is going to do so much better than a $3 million team. But the more the firm wants an advisor, the more economics that are in it for the firm and the more eyes and senior leadership gets involved and there's more ability for those firms to get creative. And how about if two teams come together? So if an individual advisor is doing a million and he's going to partner with a team doing three million and now instead of a million, it's four million in production. Yeah. So I would say devil's in the details there. Oftentimes, advisors can package themselves, for lack of a better term, and be looked at as a $4 million team. But it really depends upon how coordinated or closely tied together those advisors are. It doesn't always work that way. And of course, the downside is the more decision makers you have and the more stakeholders, the harder it is for each individual advisor to land in the best possible place for them. So the short answer is sometimes it works. Sometimes firms don't really take it into account because the businesses are so different. Got it. And how about deal trends? Are deals generally getting larger or structures changing? You know, I've been at this for almost 25 years and every year firms warn deals could go away or deals could go lower. To my knowledge and my recollection, I've only really seen that happen once. It lasted about a couple of months. It went down and then they went right back up again. So where are they going from here? Yeah, I wouldn't say the deals are getting larger. I think the structures are becoming much more advisor friendly. So the deals, the, the headline numbers have been relatively consistent the last number of years. The pullback I think you're referring to was on the heels of the Department of Labor FAQs around recruiting deals. Firms really restructured deals for a brief period of time, but they've bounced right back up. The really good thing about deals for advisors are that there's now more viable options for an advisor to consider, which is the ultimate check that deals will remain competitive. If one firm decided to pull back, they just wouldn't win opportunities. So the more choices, the more the advisor's in the driver's seat. And what I mean by structures are becoming more advisor-friendly is that now advisors are seeing more of the deal upfront than ever before. We're seeing certain firms reimburse for deferred comp, which is relatively new. And we're even seeing firms make backends based upon growth on assets versus growth in production, which is more advisor-friendly. So I think overall, really good time for advisors considering deals because they are at an all-time high and the structures are as good as they've ever been. Interesting. Definitely. So let me now ask you, you the next question. How has advisor mindset changed 
surrounding deals over the years. You've been at this for 25 plus years or so. Recruiting deals have always been part of the overall business model. What's been advisors' attitudes towards deals over that time? I love that question. And I actually share it with most advisors I talk with. When I first started the business 25 years ago, the number one statement recruiters led with and the number one question advisors asked was, hey, I've got a hot deal, was what the recruiter said. And the advisor said, what's the deal? What are they paying? That's really what what drove things. That's telling for a couple of reasons. One, independence wasn't a thing in those days. So it wasn't that going independent was an option. It was either you moved for a deal to another major firm or you stayed put. It was sort of binary. But the second thing about it was that there really wasn't, in advisors' minds, a lot of difference between the firms. Absolutely, there are things you could say about the difference between Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and Merrill Lynch and UBS and UBS and Raymond James. But for the most part, if an advisor were going to move, deal was very important. It was probably one of the most important driving characteristics. But in the last number of years, what's really changed is a couple of things. One, we're seeing younger advisors step up to the plate and say, They're beginning to to look at independence, get educated on it, see the benefits of building long-term enterprise value, and realizing that if I go independent at 30 instead of at 50, I've got 20 extra years to build enterprise value. And we've interviewed many guests on this podcast, younger advisors who have eschewed making that interim move to another major firm for a deal in order to go independent. The second change is really probably most telling or more universal is that While if an advisor is inclined to move to another traditional W-2 model, deal is certainly important, but it's not the first question. The first question is, will I have more freedom and control, more agency over my business? And that's probably the number one thing that's changed is advisors value and want to make sure that their freedom to serve clients, to grow their business without limitation, and to be able to count on a fair wage without it being changed regularly. Having more agency over their professional life is probably most important. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. And it's also why we're seeing firms like Raymond James, who has very publicly had a lower deal than most of its competitors, have outsized recruiting success because advisors look at the firm and value the culture and the flexibility and the fact that advisors own their book of business. Another comment I'll make is what you said about younger advisors. What I've seen before Our younger advisors saying, well, I'm young enough. I can take a 10-year recruiting deal, and then I'll have a bunch of money in the bank, and then I'll still be able to go independent in the future. While that still happens, and nothing wrong with that approach, we are seeing advisors skip ahead. And if they know they want to go independent, ripping off the Band-Aid and doing it earlier. And I think that's what's exciting about it, is advisors are looking at their business as a business much more often. And of course, for advisors that still value a big deal, those are out there. And that's why so many different types of firms are successful, because there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Let's go back for a second to what you said about why firms like Raymond James, and I'm assuming you're putting Stiefel Nicholas and some of the other regional firms into the same bucket, why they've had so much success. So I guess part of it is advisors are willing to say to are more open-minded even to come to the table. They may say, what is the deal? And realizes that the deal is 25% or so less than what they could get elsewhere. But advisors are more open-minded. 
But I think the other thing is, is that the onus then is much more on the firm, a firm like Raymond James or Stiefel Nicholas, to prove that for every dollar they are less in the deal, that they've got a better value proposition that's going to help the advisor to grow faster or have a better quality of life, et cetera. So how do they do that, for example? How does a firm like Raymond James prove to an advisor, yes, we've got a smaller deal, but we're still the better play? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, they really do have to prove it. It's through the due diligence process that they have to make tangible that an advisor's life is going to be easier, that they'll have more flexibility for clients, and that culturally it's going to make sense. Because obviously if all things are equal, an advisor is going to go to the higher bidder. So it is hard for them to prove it out oftentimes, but I would say the home office visit is a really good way that they showcase it. And then every interaction that an advisor has with the firm is a lens into what it would be like to work there. So advisors we've worked with that have joined both firms have had higher offers, but still choose Raymond James or Stiefel or fill in the blank for the firm because they felt at home. They felt like it was more comfortable and that they can do better work for clients. And ultimately they're making a 10 plus year commitment and they'd rather be at their number one choice firm rather than getting the top deal out there. Interesting. I agree, actually. I see it the same way. How about on the other end of the spectrum, how would you talk to an advisor to help them reconcile not taking a major recruiting deal and instead betting on themselves and going some version of independent? Yeah, well, that's the key question because while there are models of independence that absolutely offer some transition money that's in the independent broker-dealer space, there are models of supported independence that offer transition money. At the end of the day, the money in the independent space doesn't compare upfront to the money that an advisor can get by going to another traditional firm. So that is the 64, I should say, instead of $64,000, $64 million question. And the answer is this. It comes down to what an advisor values most and whether or not he or she believes in his or her growth and his or her ability to thrive in an environment outside the traditional space. So what do I mean by that? The first thing is, is that if you are going independent, it's all about valuing, building long-term enterprise value building a business. We just walked out of our staff meeting not an hour ago, and Wendy, who works for us, talked about having moved $5 million plus Barry Mitchell from UBS to launch his own firm. And he launched it without a service provider, so there was no capital provided up front other than some soft dollars from the custodian, but didn't compare to the kind of offers he would have gotten had he looked at a Morgan Stanley or a Merrill Lynch or a Wells Fargo, or a Rockefeller, or First Republic, or anything else. But Barry was really focused on growing not only organically with more freedom and having more control over how to serve clients, but also inorganically, the notion of really building an enterprise and being able to recruit and acquire, to acquire other small businesses. And the option at the end of the day of either selling his business to his staff or to sell on the open market. And those are things he just couldn't do if he stayed within the wirehouse world. So even though he walked away from a considerable amount of deferred comp, and even though he was, the opportunity cost of other recruitment deals were things he gave up, at the end of the day, it was much more important to him to build a long-term enterprise. Exactly right. It's more just about mindset and orientation and risk tolerance. It's betting on yourself and being more long-term greedy thinking about the benefits of building enterprise value that you can sell in a tax-efficient way at the end of the day, sell all or part of the business, and also the benefits of a higher payout. 
And as the business grows, picking up operating leverage. So there isn't a right or wrong answer with any of this, but it's true on the short term, an advisor is likely better off taking a recruiting deal. But if they're really bullish on their growth and have a longer term orientation, then the math of independence can make a lot of sense. And we've done episodes on that as well. And I would expect a well-run independent firm to net anywhere from 60 to 70% of revenue. And that's on every dollar. And that number changes depending upon whether someone's leveraging a supported platform or a service provider, of course, how much they pay their staff and what their other local expenses are. But in many cases, an advisor can almost double their take-home economy by going independent. I think that's right. And to be fair, we also just moved a $7 million team to Morgan Stanley. That is a team that was interested in independence, and actually most teams are. Who isn't all about wanting more freedom and control? But at the end of the day, the turnkey nature of an all-under-one-roof platform where he or she didn't have to be responsible for putting toner in the copy machine is a common thing people say. They were just much more comfortable in the wirehouse world. And a common answer was this particular team, the lead member of the team, was well into his 50s. And it's funny because that's probably not far off where most people who go independent are. But this particular team said, I only have probably five to seven years left to work and wanted to do it, felt better about the short-term upside of a transition deal. So it really comes down to what you just said, that it's all about advisor orientation and mindset. There's no one right answer for sure. And the good news is the industry landscape has really expanded. So an advisor really has his or her pick of the litter. Exactly right. Let's dive in then to what I called in this article for Advisor Hub, the bull and bear case for recruitment deals. So let's switch back and forth. Why don't you take the bull case for recruiting deals and I'll take the bear case after that. Perfect. So the bull case for recruiting deals. First of all, it can be life-changing money. And for an advisor that's got a lot of his net worth tied up in his business, in the production of his business, the notion of being able to take some really nice chips off the table mid-career and essentially still own the business, still continue to make good money, that's a pretty good gig. It always was and it always will be. So, you know, if you're talking 3X, in some cases we've seen even close to 4X deals, again, not all up front, life-changing money. The second thing it does is de-risk the move. Is The bottom line is, is that an advisor who, again, has a lot of his or her net worth tied up in his business, it's a notion of taking chips off the table but it really takes the sting out of a move and helps an advisor get more comfortable. So those early months can be scary. And for an advisor that may be either less comfortable about their growth or just generally speaking, isn't comfortable with a whole lot of risk, a transition deal can certainly mitigate what may be surprises of down earning months or the like. The next thing it does is it's a reward for hard work. I mean, somebody who goes independent and eschews a transition deal is really betting it all on the long term. And long term could be five to seven years where it really begins to pay off. So the notion is that they've worked hard to build a business and a deal rewards them for the hard work and perhaps maybe even lets them ease up for a bit of time um, to focus on living their best business life. The next thing is it incentivizes future growth. Deals have back-end components. We've talked about it's, it's a certain amount up front, and then there are back-ends that advisors can earn based upon hitting pre-agreed 
production and asset hurdles. And by doing so, if an advisor grows, it's really an annuity for probably the first five years of the deal to be extra motivated to go out there and grow. And probably the last reason is it makes a good move even better. The notion is if the deal should not be the reason you choose to go to a firm or choose to move at all, but it should be cherry on top, or it certainly can be cherry on top. And so if you have identified the best possible firm and at the same time can get paid at life-changing money in order to go there, that can be a home run. So how about the bear case? Yeah, I'll take the bear case. So I got, I would say, seven reasons against a recruiting deal. Number one is you're locked in for the long term. Some of these larger recruitment deals are a minimum of nine years. Normally it's 10 years. And if an advisor hits back ends, we've seen some deals that can extend to 14 or 15 years of financial obligations. So while an advisor can always be a free agent by only spending the transition money at the rate at which it forgives, there's still the mental and and real handcuffs of having a long-term commitment to a firm. The second reason is you're losing a large portion of the deal to taxes. A deal and any of your ongoing payout is ordinary income tax versus the long-term capital gains of selling a business as an independent. And if you are running an independent business, you get the tax benefits of running certain expenses through the business and other ways you can structure compensation, again, versus a W-2 payout. Third reason is an advisor is giving up more control when they're taking a recruiting deal, especially versus going independent. As more advisors are tied into forgivable notes, sunset programs, and the like, the more firms have leverage to make certain changes, whether it's changes to compensation, changes to um, policies, and advisors then are somewhat beholden to any and all outcomes a firm throws their way. Next one is we have seen some advisors, I would say it's the minority of advisors, opting to go to the highest bidder, which may be their second or third choice firm. And this can be to the detriment of their clients. So it does create somewhat of a conflict. Another related topic is we've seen teams with conflicting views of the short term versus the long term, where maybe it's because of age and and runway in the business. Let's say it's a younger advisor who really wants to be independent or wants to go to a firm that provides more flexibility and control, but the older advisor is looking for the top deal. We've seen partnerships break up because of this. Oftentimes, it's an irreconcilable difference because it's such a different amount of money and no one can fault someone who's looking more at the short term versus more looking at the long term. Next reason is anytime an advisor joins a W-2 firm with some mild exceptions, they're really selling the business to a new firm. Legally, most W-2 firms own the business. So when they're paying a recruiting deal, they're really buying the book from the previous employer, as opposed to going independent and an advisor owning the business. It's also a reason why we're talking about Raymond James. Raymond James is one of the only W-2 firms when an advisor owns their book. Part of the reason why their deal is lower, same thing with companies like LPL, is because the advisor is owning their book of business versus the firm. And finally, advisors taking a recruiting deal, especially when they're looking at the recruiting deal as part of their retirement plan, are selling the business normally for a lower purchase price than if the business was sold on the open market. So if an independent advisor sells their business to a private equity firm, to another RIA, or even, let's say, to a bank, they're getting long-term capital gains for the sale of the business, and there's going to be multiple bidders who can all come up with a customized structure. 
So businesses sold as an independent normally valued on a multiple of EBITDA versus a multiple of trailing 12 or GDC in the W2 world. So depending upon the size of the business, multiples have never been higher for independent businesses. So we would expect a much better after-tax net benefit to the advisor who's selling their business as an independent versus a recruiting deal as a W2. So help me to understand, is there a way for an advisor to think about the difference? Is there a percentage difference between the two or how long does an advisor would an advisor have to be independent before they can take advantage of those extra multiples? How does that work? Yeah, it's a great question. So first off, we mentioned it earlier, there could be forgivable loans for an advisor going independent. Um, That's what independent broker dealers, whether it's the independent arm of Raymond James or Wells Fargo or Ameriprise, LPL, et cetera. And then even some supported platforms, be it Sanctuary Wealth Partners or otherwise, they do provide some upfront capital. So it's not mutually exclusive that you have to be W-2 to get a deal and that you have to go independent without taking any upfront cash. What we normally see, it really depends upon the growth of the business and how well a business transitions. It's likely a five to six year payback period between taking a recruitment deal, so taking more of the short-term financial gain and the lower payout, versus getting little or no upfront cash as an independent and getting a higher payout. And as the business grows, they're able to, I think, narrow that gap even sooner. Still not a guarantee. You're still betting on yourself again, but there is a path forward. And advisors can definitely reconcile the short-term versus the long-term if they really think about their business as a business and they get very clear on what they're trying to solve for, which I think is a perfect segue into our last segment, which is talking about some of the key questions that advisors should ask themselves and consider before deciding whether a forgivable loan is right for them. So I'll turn the question to you. What's one of the questions an advisor should ask themselves as they're thinking through this decision? Okay, so I think first and foremost, it's do I have a short-term financial perspective or am I willing to think more long-term greedy? And you use the term long-term greedy before, and I think that that's right, that an advisor needs to be really clear on what's most important to them. And most advisors are. Do I have the stomach or risk tolerance to bet it all on the long term? Yep, exactly right. The second question I would say is, where do I believe I can best serve clients and live my best business life? Is it as a W-2 employee or is it as an independent business owner? And again, you can still get a forgivable note by going independent, but that's really the philosophical divide. It's, am I more comfortable with the scaffolding and support and turnkey nature of a more familiar W-2 model? Or do I really get excited about the idea of business ownership? So some of this is certainly not about the the economics. It's more about lifestyle. It's how you want to live your business life. And it's what's going to get you most excited for the next 10, 12, 15 plus years of your career. Yeah. And actually, if you ask me, I think that that should be the most important guide for Step Forward is... In terms of the philosophical, what am I going to be most excited about? What is going to get me the most excited? How do I live my best life? But I'd say the third question is, what stage of my career am I in and what's my risk tolerance? So I mentioned a little while earlier, an advisor that's got five to seven years left to go, left till he or she retires. There are some that may say five to seven years is more than enough time to grow the business, to groom my next generation, 
and to really build this enterprise. And there are many others that would say, if I were 10 years younger, you know, if I were 40 or I were 30, I would absolutely want to go independent. But I definitely don't because five to seven just isn't enough time to make up. So it's about risk tolerance and amount of time till the end of the runway. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, to me, those are the three major questions an advisor should ask themselves. But there's many, many more. And we have a, call it our Defining Your Best Business Life Self-Assessment, a little little plug for a, a seminal resource that we have. So anyone who would like to really dig into some of those questions can reach out and we're happy to walk them through our assessment process. Yeah, great point. So this episode will probably not settle the debate over whether you should opt for a forgivable loan or not, because the truth is there is no right answer. But hopefully it gave you some food for thought when considering what's right for you. The exciting thing about the landscape today is that regardless of how you answer the above questions, the result is that there are plenty of destinations to choose from and a lot of middle grounds. I think it used to be binary, big deal or no deal at all. And now there are many shades of gray in between, and that's what's so exciting. So, Lewis, once again, thank you for joining me. Yeah, of course. And I thank you for listening. I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. Please see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave the show a star rating and a review. It will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.